The God of Atheists by Stefan Molyneux, Chapter 8, Cafeteria Showdown. Alice withdrew from her clique. Her former friends, bewildered at first, found that even complaining about Alice's betrayal was not enough to keep them together, and began to dissolve. Alice's friends, used to being on top, found themselves completely out of favor. They had snubbed other girls, and so were snubbed in return. They gathered and bitched and whined, pacing the lonely beach of exclusion. After a suitably punishing time in solitary, however, they were taken in by the other cliques which formed in the vacuum of Alice's abdication. Alice and Sarah blazed through all this intrigue, unaware of or indifferent to the resentful ripples in their wake. They held hands in public and sat together at lunch, their food forgotten in their hunger for listening and speaking. And then, one morning, something quite remarkable happened. They did not stop in the girls' bathroom to fix their hair. No beads hung from their necks. They wore comfortable shoes. Their nails were unpainted. They had sensible, non-obscuring bangs. They were twelve. This caused a staggering ripple through the school, but none so great as their even more radical decision. Together, in full view of everyone, Alice and Sarah had pizza at lunch. This was unprecedented. Before she met Sarah, Alice had been the commander-in-chief of the skeletal army of the underfed. At lunch, she and her group would patrol the cafeteria, scanning the plates and trays for any evidence of creamy salad dressing, complex carbs, or two percent milk. This patrol first started the cycle of hiding for the bulimics. If a transgressor was spied, no matter how fat or ugly she was to begin with, Alice and company would stop and sneer, "'Enjoying your lunch?' One of the girls behind Alice would make a pig-like snorting noise, and then pretend to cough to cover it up. So when Sarah and Alice had pizza, it rocked the whole social body. And so it was that a great mystery of their young lives was solved, and the mystery was this. Were Alice's friends loyal to Alice, or what she represented? If they were loyal to Alice, the mental stomach stapling might loosen a little, the electric sugar-cream doughnuts might actually break out of their current orbit around the jocks. But if they were loyal to what Alice represented, then they would attack her for breaking ranks as surely as the jocks attacked the doughnuts. Alas, though, their loyalties were clear. On the day of fateful pizza, Rachel, formerly one of Alice's best friends, came in and sat down. "'Alice, you okay?' she asked in a hushed voice. "'Hey, Sarah. It was amazing. Rachel's power of put-down, she gave the impression of using the single-syllable version of Sarah's name, not from intimacy, but because she didn't rate the effort of a second syllable.' "'Yeah, good.' said Alice, glancing at Sarah. They had discussed this for five hours the previous night. Show no fear! Rachel stared at the pizza. But that's carbs and fat and just calories. That's like half a marathon. Yeah. Why are you eating it? You're not... You're not... Rachel's voice dropped to a hush, and she pretended to insert a finger into her throat. Nah, said Alice, taking a deep, deliberate bite and making Rachel flinch. Just hungry. Hungry, cried Rachel, then softened her voice. We're all hungry, but that's no reason to... To what? demanded Sarah, against the agreed-on rules. Show no fear, but don't get angry either. To enjoy your food? Rachel turned and looked at her coolly. Did I ask for your opinion? I think not. She turned back to Alice and murmured the word, Loser, under her breath. Sarah knew better than to call her on it. It would just be denied anyway. Hey, but if that's what you heard... "'Remember, Alice?' said Rachel. "'We made a pact. Don't let me get fat. I can't let you do this.' "'I take it back,' said Alice. "'You can't. We—' she lowered her voice. "'Span on it. No take-backs.' 
She grabbed what remained of Alice's pizza and stood up. "'Put that back,' said Alice, leaping to her feet. "'It's for your own good,' said Rachel, and this broke another rule which was never to use parent-isms to correct anyone in the clique. She began walking over to the garbage. Silence flashed over the cafeteria. The tribal joy of watching killed all conversation. The die was cast. Alice stood up. "'That's mine. Put it back.' "'Once on the lips, forever on the hips,' smirked Rachel. Another girl made a snorking sound, turning it into a cough. Sarah stood up, too. Rachel said, "'You'll thank me later,' and held the paper plate of pizza over the garbage can. "'You tip that, you're in trouble,' warned Alice, her cheeks flushed. To the watching boys weaned on Zena. She had never looked more beautiful. Do we dare hope for... for a catfight?' Rachel smiled and tipped the pizza into the garbage. There was an awful pause. Alice and Sarah had not discussed this possibility. They expected the exquisite swordsmanship of feminine insults and put-downs. They dreamed of perhaps grudging approval. But a fight? Alice stared at Rachel's face and made a decision. She reached into her purse and took something out. "'Bad thing to do,' Alice said. Rachel glared back. What are you going to do? Hit me like some trailer park trash? Alice glanced at Sarah. They understood. It was magic, but it was their friendship. They leapt forward quickly, dragging Rachel to the ground. The kids all burst into wild cheers and leapt on the table, scattering food. The cook picked up the phone. But everything was over by the time she finished dialing. Alice and Sarah stood up. Rachel jumped up, her red face contorted. You bitch! she cried. What do you think you're doing? She stared around, suddenly feeling a complete loss of power, of control. Even the fat kids are laughing. Shut up, she shouted, thinking, my hair is a mess. But something was wrong, very wrong, as a girl who spent thirty minutes every morning doing her hair, she felt it in her very bones. And then she saw it, lying on the floor like the corpse of a beloved pet. What is that? Is that my hair? She reached up, touched her head, and screamed, You bitch! You fucking bitch! Alice smiled. Now we've both lost some weight. Well, the teachers came in then and whisked Alice and Rachel away to wait in separate classrooms to consider their actions until the principal returned from lunch. During this time, Rachel cried in front of her little compact mirror, caressing the stump of her missing ponytail, while Alice worked on her defense. Eventually, Alice was called into Principal Bircher's office. Miss Bircher was built like a squat trucker with man-tits. She was very political, very anti-male, but respected her students enough to let them come to their own conclusions. She hated the media with a passion and had spearheaded the movement to keep news and commercials out of the classroom. She disliked capitalism, but also environmentalism, which was an unusual combination. She was an old-school Marxist, believing in rugged industrialization and staunch collectivism. Yet she ran a private school for the economic and intellectual elite. This garnered her much ribbing at her Wednesday night international socialist meetings. So what, she'd say, you either start a revolution or work from the inside. The motley group of bike couriers, art students, Starbucks employees, and wannabe jazz musicians did not impress her much, but she needed something to do with her weekday evenings, and there was good cruising at socialist meetings. Somehow, lesbians, except of the lipstick kind, so rarely turned right-wing. Capitalism was a penis, the state was a vagina. No reason why, it just was. When Alice came in, Miss Butcher was quite skeptical. Alice was the head of an evil capitalist clique which promoted conspicuous consumption of the worst kind and was thin, beautiful, and entirely unlikely to swell the lesbian ranks, which was a shame, since they could use some thin and beautiful women. Bad word, members. Too close to penis. Eh, we've already got enough pear-shaped women in comfortable shoes. However, news of Alice's fight cheered Miss Butcher somewhat. Scrap of tomboy has potential... "'So tell me what this is all about,' she said, gesturing for Alice to sit. "'Well, I've decided to stop dieting.' "'Really?' said Miss Butcher, leaning forward, a revolutionary gleam in her eye. "'And why is that?' "'Well, it's not really healthy,' murmured Alice. "'No, statistics say you're all getting fatter, but you lot are really bucking the trend.' 
I mean, I was thinking the other day, watching a music video, really, these buttons are almost too easy to push, and I thought, hey, I can spend my whole life worrying about being fat, but will that make me happy? Miss Butcher jabbed her finger skyward. Yes, yes, and just think of the companies making fat profits over everyone trying to be thin. Yeah. So I had pizza at lunch today. Miss Butcher frowned. Well, I didn't realize it was that serious. A popular girl eating pizza was about as common as an unpopular girl taking ballet. So then Rachel comes over and throws it out, because she says it'll make me fat. I asked her not to, but she did anyway, so I got mad. So, so there was a fight. Yeah, I know. No, not a fight. Not quite. No? I just cut off her ponytail. With heroic effort, Miss Butcher suppressed a smile. That works on so many levels, my little red guard. She caught herself and frowned mightily. That was very dangerous, though, using scissors. Alice stared at her feet. Yeah, I know. But I don't like how girls just talk, you know, and are always mean. I mean, why not fight? Boys do. I didn't start it. Look, I know how you feel. I really do. You're starting to think about your life, and that's great. But you can't go around shearing your classmates if they act in a reactionary manner. Oh, good word, mouthpiece of the revolution. Why not just give her your mantra? WWTD. What would Trotsky do? Yeah, I see that. And I'm going to get calls from Rachel's parents. And as fashionable capitalist running dogs, they'll be outraged that a fresh-faced daughter of the bourgeoisie has been so cruelly violated. She went for property, you for flesh. So here's what we'll do. Detention, one week. And an essay on the limitations of violence. Limitations, thought Alice with glee. Ha! <laughs> she approves. And Rachel, she asked. That's between me and her, said Miss Butcher. But her ideology will not escape my notice. Okay, now, run, run along. In biology, Sarah gazed at Alice as she slid into the seat next to her. Alice glanced back, grinning. Sarah raised an eyebrow. Alice mimed cutting something, pushing it over on a plate, then taking a bite with a fork. It was an old communique, easily understood. Piece of cake. Chapter 9 Terry Terry was from a small town. He was tall, thin-skinned, doe-eyed, and had spiky black hair like a chia pet plugged into the manes. Terry was destined to be a computer programmer from day one. He was a solitary child who fell in love with computers when his math teacher showed the class Star Raiders on an Atari 400. Ah, the drifting stars, the sparkly photons! He worked in a hardware store in his mid-teens and spent a lot of time using his calculator watch to figure out how many weeks' worth of work it would take to buy a real, i.e. programmable, computer. Throughout his childhood, Terry was convinced that his parents, though outwardly a high school vice principal and homemaker, were in fact experiments in the very latest in otherworldly entertainment technology. When he was very young, Terry believed that his parents had some sort of unbelievable inner life going on, perhaps projected on some IMAX screen just a little to the left or right of their field of vision. Or perhaps that they had invisible eyes in their foreheads that perceived heat or music or dancing fairies because it seemed so hard to get their attention. They were kind and considerate, and not beyond petting, although Terry found it hard to be petted to sleep by his mother because each pat came so far apart that it always startled him. It was not as relaxing as being held. She would rock him so slowly that her patterned breasts would swing by his sight with the speed and regularity of bright polyester constellations. Perhaps due to this, Terry really got into astronomy when he was about eleven. He bought a telescope, kept records on sunspots, and mapped the mountains of the moon. He read about interstellar distances which seemed to stretch his mind almost to the breaking point, like when a child first learns about infinity and asks, What's after that? Terry, from the age of five to seven, for some reason, thought that his mother's ironing board was the edge of the universe. Once, reading about the problems of communications, he read that the problem of delay was significant even at interplanetary distances. The moon was only two seconds away. Mars was several minutes. Gosh, I wish that my parents were even that close, he would think wistfully. Terry's father would have been a 
perfect dad if he'd been sped up about twenty thousand times. Playing catch with him, for instance, was quite disconcerting. It set back Terry's sense of physics, as well as his athletic abilities, several years, because his father would wind up and throw so slowly that when gravity and momentum finally got a hold of the ball, the effect was startlingly rapid like a video going from slow motion to fast forward. He read stories so slowly that Terry became fascinated with morphemes, the bitty parts of speech. Pauses between characters speaking were so long that every line seemed like a new chapter. Terry used to sneak glances, sure that his father was reading ahead, but he wasn't. His eyes slowly crept down to the next line, the cheeks were sucked in. It always seemed that he produced his scant words by milking a vacuum. Sometimes Terry stared at his father, wondering how long it would take him to notice his son's unblinking gaze. But he never did, and Terry always backed away from this game, as if from a precipice. Dr. Seuss was a Chinese water-torture of repetition. The cat did not like green eggs and ham over and over, and had to really think about it each time, each page, each line. Terry would be dizzy when it all ended, his fists in knots, and wouldn't sleep for hours. Terry's mind worked very, very quickly, and he wondered sometimes whether there wasn't a fixed amount of mental speed available to a family, because, sure as Socrates, he seemed to have gained his prodigious speed at the expense of his parents. He sometimes pictured the progress of his gestation within his mother, imagining that when his parents first visited the doctor, they asked a lot of rapid-fire questions about the process, his father leaning against the paper-wrapped patient bed, his hat back at a rakish angle like a forties reporter. So, Doc, you're saying that ectopic is a pregnancy in which the fertilized ovum implants on any tissue other than the endometrial lining of the uterus? And then his mother, she was always smoking in this fantasy, but through a cigarette holder, which seemed okay, would jokingly call Terry's dad a rube, tapping a medical diagram with a red fingernail, saying, Listen up, Rube, it goes like this, see? As her pregnancy progressed, the fantasy went, more and more energy and speed flowed into Terry's developing ecosystem of growing flesh and silent, blunt thoughts. Did I feel like an expanding balloon, he wondered, with the umbilical cord like a string tied to me, bumping around in the slosh of my mother's innards? As the months passed, his parents began to space out and slow down, easing into friendly, vacant, over-the-fence chatterboxes. Terry always imagined that their minds slowed before their words. That just seemed the way of the world. His mother stopped smoking, losing that stimulation. His father started playing horseshoes. And then finally they shuffled to the hospital, all their former energy compressed into one restless, digging fetus and sat dumbly on the delivery room as the doctor lowered himself from the high crags of medical terms to the simple planes of monosyllabic comfort words. You have baby. Breathe good. Much pain. It wasn't so, of course, but it took him a while to believe it. He would sometimes joke with aunts and uncles, as young children do, searching for clues about his parents' life before he was born, looking for the limits of responsibility, probing nature and nurture. One treasured interaction was with his Uncle Tommy. When he was about fifteen, Terry had said something about his parents having a very animated discussion, and Tommy had laughed and said, Wow, which one blinked? Terry had acted surprised, upon which Tommy had said, That pair make fossils look lively. And then Terry had laughed, quite relieved that his parents had changed so little over the years. Somehow it let him off the hook. He was also a kinship nomad, and was noted among his extended family for asking probing questions about long-lost relatives, and asking for long-lost stories, ancient history, combing for... something? Well, it was something, but nothing his family could understand. What do you want to dig all that up for, anyways? What's past is past. Terry's extended family all fit comfortably into their social niches. They referred to each other as Buddy Here, as in, Buddy Here started shot into the trees and almost killed Stan and were completely uninterested in weeding the yous from their sentences. Yous guys was quite as valid as you guys. They also turned beer into sheep in that they used the same word for both singular and plural. Give me a beer, and I drank thirteen beer last night. 
they viewed all attempts at self-improvement as pretentious. They even used the phrase, putting on airs, and would sink any original idea in copious amounts of alcohol. Like peeing on an ice-filled urinal, it caused a satisfying inside crumbling and a petty but heady sense of power. Before he left for college, Terry got a porch-swing lecture on Big City Ladies from Uncle Tommy. Uncle Tommy, oddly enough, was about to have his own heart broken by Mindy, an archaeology student from Thunder Bay, whom he nicknamed Mindiana Jones, who would string him along for almost a year. One of the eternal constants of Terry's family was the degree to which various members lectured each other over vices which were, almost without fail, about to consume the lecturers. This was the extent to which self-knowledge was present. This was Tommy's lecture on Big City Ladies. Terry, he said, having spent a good deal of time traveling to Thunder Bay, pronounced Thunder Bay, I wanted to tell you a bit about Big City Ladies. Now, I'd be the first to admit that Thunder Bay is no trana, pronounced trana, but it'll do you no, so, no harm, so listen up. Pause. Spit. Spit again, then. Out here, a woman loves a man for who he is. You know, the basics, what sort of man he is. Uh, honest, hard-working, loyal, what have you. But down there, he said, whispering as if down there was the twenty-third layer of hell, things are different. There, women are into you for what you can do for them. You can help them, give them a leg up. No, not that way, smart-ass. Listen up. They're yours. They're ambitious, hard, cold, selfish, you know. But they don't come out and say it. Nope, not a lot. They'll fall on you and sigh over your shoulder while they go through your wallet. Cold! And they think they're all liberated, but they play all the old games. They can make a million a year. They still want the car door open for them. It's like they think they're all that. Here he snapped his fingers. As if there's no supply other than them. And you're a good boy, Mikey. You're as smart as a whip deep down. Do us all proud. But you're a hick on the outside, and that's going to make you a mock. So keep your wits about you. Privately, Terry didn't think that a boy fresh off the bus from St. Mary's would draw cold and calculating stares from prowling Bay Street vixens, but it is the privilege of the aged to stir more than a smidgen of paranoia into their ethics, so he kept his opinion to himself. The distinction between head-smart and heart-smart was very important to Uncle Tommy. He was the family diplomat, the peacemaker. Head-smart, in his book, was very dangerous. Somehow it had produced nuclear weapons, Contrary to stereotype, Tommy did not pronounce it nuclear, but he did put more emphasis on the first syllable than an urbanite would. Nuclear. Heart smart, on the other hand, never swayed lawyers or judges, but always won over the jury. Tommy's metaphors had the natural overcomplication of those who rarely submit their inner ramblings to the critical examination of others. In Tommy's view, Terry had head smarts, but not heart smarts, which made him vulnerable. It's late to develop a hard hide, but it has to be done, and better you should do it for yourself than have others do it for you. After the talk, Terry was aware of his deficiencies, but had no idea how to fix them. Only being head-smart seemed bad, and having a hard hide was surely good, but what the hell did that mean? Walking home, he suddenly felt quite hostile towards good old Uncle Tommy. So he dispenses advice, then whittles on the porch, and if I come back with my tail between my legs, it was because I didn't take his advice. And if I come back in a Camry, it's because I took his advice. Huh, he sneered to himself. Rube. His parents had had Terry late. His mother was in her early forties. In Terry's opinion, that was no indication that he was unwanted or accidental. He firmly believed that his parents had been trying to have him since their mid-twenties, since they married, in fact but that his father's sperm, being his father's, were in no hurry. The sperm, which finally made it, could have been re released as long as a decade before, and just took its sweet time. You only have had to see my father on the highway to understand that. Entering his teens, Terry had nothing in common with those around him, and so began drinking early and hard. People are overly influenced by TV-induced visions of life in small towns, imagining white picket fences, pies on the window sills, concerned neighbors, and slow-moving horseshoe games. But they are entirely mistaken. Most small towns are, in fact, squalid pits of vice, corruption, and despair. The misery that seeps into one's bones from knowing that one is far from the center of the galaxy is hard to overcome. There's a reason why Luke Skywalker came from Tatooine. 
the savagery of small-town drinking, especially among the young, cannot be overestimated. Some people drink to forget, others because they have so little to remember. Terry was a border case. He was an unsophisticated but highly intelligent youth who attempted to solve the problem of being different by drinking his higher faculties away. His unconscious was his savior. It gave him shyness to protect his sensitivity, then gave him an allergy to alcohol to save his liver. It was not a complete allergy, a strong indication of its psychosomatic nature, but rather a whole Sunday nausea which left him unable to do anything. He could not watch TV, or read, or walk, or clean, or program his computer. The long stretch of a small-town Sunday is unbearably lengthened by a vague physical malaise, and so, regretfully, Terry began to withdraw from the drinking binges. This was very difficult, because drinking parties are crushingly dull to a non-drinker, as they are to a drinker, of course. That is what the alcohol is designed to erase. Also, when one is trying to escape a bad crowd, there are no good excuses. During his breakout phase, Terry had a number of variations on the following phone conversation. Come out with us, dude. We're cruising for coyotes. Arr! Terry would shrug, cradling the receiver against his shoulder. No, not tonight. Why not? What's the matter? I don't feel like it. Come on, stop fucking around. Sharon will be there. You got a shot. I'm not feeling well. So what? Hair of the dog, dude. Maybe I'll just meet you for dinner. Where are you eating? Shit will just grab you along the way. Come on, you pussy. Get you at six. I gotta pass. What, you got a girlfriend? No. A boyfriend? Fuck, bring him along. I won't be jealous. Much. You guys go ahead without me. What the fuck? I can't believe you're such a pussy. The gang would come by anyway in some horrible van with a stained mattress in the back and cigarette burns on the dashboard and they would yell from the driveway, and he would sit in the dark like a stalking victim, and they would eventually throw a beer at his house and screech off. Terry got a computer when his grandmother died and left him a little money. He went online, of course, but could not stay long because the only internet provider was a long-distance call away. A 56K modem made online games too laggy, but he did haunt chat rooms and ICQ'd, always the lost nomad looking for his tribe. Before he left for college, Terry had half-expected a long, detailed, and possibly useful Polonius-type speech from his own father, half-imagining that the old man's unnatural quiet over the past nineteen years had been due to his constant rumination over what to say to his son when his time came to leave home. But, as it turned out, he hadn't been thinking of it, or, if he was, he wasn't done yet, but might be ready for the far-off year when his grandson might depart. His final morning, Terry sat at a table with his parents, drinking coffee. They imbibed coffee by the pot. Terry could never get used to the idea that it was actually a stimulant, since it seemed to do nothing for them. Then he thought with a chill, Good God, if this is what they're like on caffeine! His mother was crying, but it was a very slow cry. Even the tear which zigzagged down her lined cheek seemed to be getting lost. And not minding, no, not a bit. "'Well,' said his father eventually. Mm. said his mother. Terry stared at her, thinking, "'That tear has got to be tickling her. "'Will she raise her hand or shake her head?' "'But she sat still, not rock-still, that would be like an effort, "'but still like she was encased in some invisible support "'which let her relax all her muscles, yet still remain upright, "'a good-posture hammock. "'I'll miss you guys.' said Terry, which was as close as he got to, I love you. His parents were a kind of still life. It was hard to imagine loving a portrait. His father pursed his lips and sucked in his cheeks. Eventually the vacuum produced sound. It's a big world. His dad's habit of contracting contractions always irritated Terry, who wanted to grab him by the neck and shout, It's is already the short form of it is. Do you have to contract it even further to what are you, calling a snake? Oh, and thanks for the tip, Magellan. It's a big world. That will certainly help me navigate it. It's a big world, and they tax it, so keep your nose clean. Right! Irritation was, of course, a goodly part of Terry's speed. Irritation at his parents' unbearable, 
turtle pace, irritation at his clan's ability to have the same argument over and over again, or watch the same married with children ad infinitum delighting over the approach of a favorite joke, irritation with their ability to root for the local hockey team, the Cossacks, K-C-O-S-S-A-K-S, Terry could never figure out if the misspelling was deliberate, with the same enthusiasm every year, an enthusiasm undimmed by a two-decade losing streak. In general, people's ability to find stimulation in repetition drove him mental. Buy tube socks, sniffed Terry's mother. Another lengthy pause. Better get going said his father, who, as Terry knew, would not move for another ten minutes. He always wanted to be very early for things. Of course, early for a glacier is a hundred years, and our wait for him must seem about five minutes. Finally, his dad drove him to the bus station. Terry had grown so used to the sound of horns and curses whenever they went on the two-lane highway that he almost didn't hear them. He still noticed, though, that so many cars passed them in the slow lane that it felt as if they were going backwards through time. As he glanced at his father's impassive face, Terry imagined him under torture in some far-off, sweaty, Asiatic camp. There would be a ferocious man in black, with perfect oriental hair, brushing bugs off his face, and twisting the thumbscrews. Speed up, capitalist Kanaka running dog! and his father's face turning slowly to his tormentor, saying with infinite slowness, I do not like green. It was no use. Terry couldn't stand to wait for the end of the sentence, even in his imagination. Dad would survive torture without breaking, he thought, because the pain wouldn't hit him until the torturer had fretted himself into an early grave. One last picture, his father, years after being tortured, sitting in an old-age home, lowering his eyes in slow surprise at the cigarette-burned scars on his legs, with one low murmur. Oh. During his psychological phase, 14 to 16, Terry read a lot of Bradshaw and Brandon, and assumed that his father was very angry. Certainly the old man's geological pace infuriated his son no end. Was this the point? Did the old man drive others mental because he could not express his own anger? He watched his father more closely during this period and tried two things to test his theory. First, he expressed no irritation at his father's slowness. And second, he tried being even slower. And, oh my lord, wasn't that teeth gritting? If this was some kind of defense mechanism, it should change, intensify, alter something, if it was no longer having its intended effect. But no, oh, nothing happened, nothing changed. Terry resumed his normal footprints-on-the-ceiling pace and listened with greater sympathy to his classmates who talked with wide-eyed dread about being sent to Mr. Coleman's office for detention. This was considered a grave punishment because the slowness of his lectures applied to hyperactive MTV kids gave rise to facial tics sometimes lasting a week or more. At the bus station... Terry got up ten minutes before the bus had to leave, and shepherded his father over to the bus bay. Ten minutes, he thought. Yeah, that should be just about enough for the handshake, which is like watching my father raise and lower a tiny bridge. As the bus pulled out of the station, Terry leaned back in his seat and turned his head. His father stood on the platform, staring at Terry with wide, sad eyes. He waved his left hand very slowly, and shrank in size as the bus pulled away, as if he were falling into the dust of the window-glass. And a sudden gap of years seemed to open up in Terry's chest, and he ached at the thought of waving his own son goodbye as he left home for the first and last time. His eyes filled with tears. His mouth dropped open in shock, and he shook his head slightly. An old email joke sprang into his mind, and his tears coursed stronger. Sign outside of a funeral home. Slow down. We'll wait. And then he vividly pictured closing an open coffin lid over his father's still face, long in the future, and his stomach contracted, and he felt that he had spent his whole life waiting for his father to become different, to be something that he was not, and that he had forever hated him for being who he was. 
and he imagined that his own son in the years to come might be as placid as his father, and hate him also for his haste. And it hit him hard then, as the highway opened up before him, that he had forever stomped his feet for his father to be different, but that he had never been able to stop stomping, and so had no right to demand change in others. And through Terry's vibrating tears the sun seemed almost to leap into the sky, and he shuddered in the shaking light, regret stretching like a tearing rope from his adult heart to his childhood home. When he was twenty-one, Terry graduated from community college with a diploma in computer programming. A few weeks later, he got a call from the school's career center, who set him up with an interview. A man named Dave Bugle was looking for a junior programmer. Terry met Dave at a Starbucks, which was cool, as job interviews which take place outside an office always are. They both wore suits, but differently. Terry looked as if he were dressed for his own funeral, Dave as if he spent every day giving a daughter away. It was the kind of white, wet January day which feels like the city is frozen inside a chilly, leaky ping-pong ball. Dave rose, grinning a grin that seemed to go twice around his head. Terry, good of you to come. Terry smiled. Uh, thanks for taking the time to meet me, Mr. Bugle. Hell, boy, it's nothing. What'll you have? Well, a coffee, perhaps? Dave leaned forward. My treat. Cream? No, thanks. Dave bought the coffees, and Terry was vaguely impressed by Dave's white, rolled-up sleeves and the way the older man's forearms encircled his cup as if he were guarding his offspring from predators. We're staying, but they're paper cups, thought Terry. That seemed to mean something, but... So, how should we begin? asked Dave. You first. I bought my resume, sir. <laughs> sir, it's for Lancelot. Call me Dave, or Davy B. Terry handed over his resume. Dave glanced at it. Yeah, I never hire on resumes. Christ, it's not as if investors would give me money based on my resume. I made my first million before I was thirty, but man, it's been rough ever since. My partner's jackals. But, like Van the Man says, we're now back on top. Let me tell you the story of this company. See if it trips your trigger. Dave took a deep draught of his steaming coffee. He was no sipper and appeared to have an asbestos tongue. Well, this thing started about a year ago, and we work in the field of environmental software. Know what that is? Well, why should you? It's pretty specialized. Well, all big companies have to report on their environmental activity, more in the U.S. than here. Are you okay with business travel? Terry nodded dumbly. He'd never been on a plane that didn't have skis on the bottom and a propeller in front. Dave nodded energetically. So we only deal with the biggest companies. The biggest. We're not some penny anti-joint going after mom-and-pop shops. We are in the process of selling the companies like Bell, Cyrex, Nortel, FedEx, to name but a few. I saw a piece of software developed by some basement guy. He built it for someone who never paid for it and had no idea what the hell to do with it. I bought it from him. He wanted money, not stock. The more fool he, and began selling it. We got some real interest, but companies are cautious of an old smoothie like me who can talk technical like he can talk rap. Dave laughed, <laughs> like my son Justin, who wishes he were to the ghetto born. We have a number of deals lined up. We have financing for another six months, so you're really going to have to hit the ground running. All our ducks are in a row, but we need a technical genius, someone who can churn code like a combine harvester. Are you a vegetarian? D no. Dave shrugged. So what do you think? W what language is the program written in? The older man frowned. Access? Uh, huh, I've, I've never heard of that. Comes with office. Oh, access. Dave snapped his fingers and pointed at him. That's it. I've never worked in that, but it's similar to Visual Basic. But aren't these going to be large systems? I mean, Bell and all. More deep than broad. I think wide user bases, not so many actual users. There's only a few managers with reporting responsibilities in this area. Access is like a toy database, good for maybe 20, 30 users. See, that's the kind of perspective we need, said Dave, jabbing his finger into the table. Someone starts asking me that stuff, by the end of the question I'm just seeing what I can dig out of my nose. I don't care what the damn thing is written in. What I do care about is having someone by my side who can reassure these clients that we're not total bullshit. But if the program is written, what do they want? Would I be working on another version? 
Dave shook his head and drained his still-steaming coffee. Now everyone and their dog wants something different than what we have. Not much, just a little. Uh, that kind of tweaking is what we need. I don't know what the hell it means, but I know that people want it. Of course, he added hastily, seeing Terry's face. There will be more versions. We would like to develop a version specific to the U.S. market, and I think that a multi-language system will allow us to expand into China, which has huge environmental problems as well. Of course, we need a French version for Bombardier, but it would be optimum to have a version that switched between the two languages. Have you ever done anything like that? Terry frowned. Well, I've studied it in theory. It's easier on the Internet. The Internet! <laughs> everything I read, everything I hear. What do you think of it? The young man frowned. Well, I think it, it, it has its place. It's great for static documents and images, but it's hell the program. I don't think it will ever replace Windows. Do you think it will ever provide movies on demand? Terry blinked. I, uh, well, something better than modems will have to come along. There's not enough bandwidth. What about running programs through email? Isn't that a Dilbert, thought Terry? That, uh, I, I, I can't see how that would work. Dave winked. Everything comes and goes. It might be a fad, after all. I, I've never heard of it, but, well, let me tell you what I'm looking for. You're a smart guy. Anyone can see that, but smarts is only a part of it. We are looking to build a company that can do $10, $20 million U.S. within five years. Now, very few startups make it that far, 2% maybe. We are biting off a lot of cud, if you know what I mean. Here are the pluses. The marketplace for environmental software is highly fragmented. There is no market leader as yet, so the opportunity is there, but we have to act now. Are you married? No. Dave laughed. <laughs> now you can sue me for asking that during an interview. It's estimated that the world market for EMIS, Environmental Management Information Systems, is over 2 billion U.S. a year. If we can capture 10% of that, that is 200 million U.S. for us. Can you imagine the kind of software you could write with that much money? The kind of team you could put together? Imagine calling up 20 of your closest friends at school, or even a teacher, hell and offering them the opportunity to work for you at double whatever they're making. I've seen it, Terry, and it's beautiful. You can be the guy who walks around the office helping your team build something extraordinary. You are the driving force, the center of the universe. He leaned forward. Now imagine that we pull a Microsoft and capture nearly 90% of the EMIS market. That is almost $2 billion a year. Can you picture owning your own plane? Not going on a holiday, but buying an island? And I'll tell you, you get some truly quality women with that kind of money. He flipped open his wallet. Here's a picture of my wife. Sits home doing 500 crunches a day. You can crack a nut with her abs. And don't believe what they say for a moment. You set a beautiful woman up in a great house. You take all her worries away. You're having her for breakfast and dinner any way you want. You just have to trust him with everything you have. All the assets have to be in the wife's name for taxes and creditors. So you have to keep him happy. I just wish I could get home for lunch. Terry now had an erection. His breath was a little tight. Dave smiled and stood. Listen, Mikey, I gotta run and meet the wife. Here's a card. I can offer you enough money to live on, all the coffee you can drink, and 5% of the company. Think about it. But think quick. I have to make a decision by tomorrow. See how many interviews you can squeeze in between now and then, and who offers you more than a little cubicle next to a smelly old photocopier. Terry stood to shake his hand, but Dave had left. Feeling weak at the knees and a little nauseous, he sat down again, his heart hammering. Shy people like Terry always think they are special in some way that the universe has missed. They're right, of course, but not in the way they think. After Dave left, all Terry could do was think, He sees me! And also, man, I could get laid something fierce! Next morning, he called Dave and accepted the offer. He did not discuss it with his family. Chapter 10 Terry starts with Dave. Terry arrived at 8.30 the following Monday. Dave was there with a petite, pretty, vaguely familiar woman who was folding colored cardboard into boxes. Terry, cried Dave. Good to see you. Welcome aboard. We have about 20 minutes before Ted Howell from Cyrix shows up. He thinks he's sniffed out that we sort of operate out of the back of a van, so he's come to visit us, you know, poke around. You're the official tech expert, so it's up to you to wow him. Angela, this is Terry. Terry, my wife Angela. Angela glanced up. She was short, slender, a blonde woman, part of the toned, mummified phalanx of rich wives. Her body would have been the envy of a gymnast, but her face seemed like a moon map of all the world's troubles. This was in stark contrast to Dave, whose face was youthful, but whose body was going to seed. "'Pleased to meet you,' said Terry, shaking her hand. "'Remember, Dave, I have a class at ten, so make this quick,' said Angela. 
"'Won't trouble you long, my love,' said Dave, grinning at Terry. "'She's going to be our secretary. "'You have to be in a back room. "'Over there. I'll, I'll call you when it's time to come out.' "'Not not in an office?' "'Nah, it makes it look like there are more offices. "'Go on now.' "'Terry took his briefcase and went through the door Dave indicated. "'He stood in a small room with about a hundred boxes of... "'What?' "'He looked in. "'The Bugle ISO 9000 Gap Analysis Tool.' software. He opened one that was a CD with a copyright a few years old and a user's manual with a Canadian Standards Board's logo. There was also a marketing insert. Coming soon, the Bugle Corporate Governance Suite, with a little picture of racially diverse workers gazing in rapt wonder at a monitor. There was also a small diagram of how ten programs interacted with each other, and underneath, bullets of features and cost savings. Terry heard someone enter the outer office. He straightened his tie, looking around the little room. Leaning against the wall was something like a tent with scaffolding and a banner half unrolled. Education, a new standard in, offices worldwide. Voices murmured outside. A knock at the door. Dave's face appeared. Terry, can I borrow you for a moment? He said loudly. Terry came out and saw Angela at the reception desk. A short man with a bulbous body stood beside her. Sorry, Ted, I'd offer you coffee, but ours is on the fritz. Ted, I want you to meet Terry Coleman, who is perhaps one of the greatest programmers you are ever likely to encounter. Blushing, Terry shook Ted's hand. So, this is the great wonder worker, said Ted. Dave's told me a lot about you. Dave smiled. Terry has joined us recently and is responsible for managing the customization of our software suite for corporate clients. Ted whistled. Man, they come young these days. It's like, in World War II, the average age of the soldiers was 26, in Vietnam, like 19. Don't tell me, I know. Dave laughed heartily. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Old farts like us, the best we can do, and you can quote me on this, is step aside and let the young geniuses do their thing. Hell, the last business I owned and really understood was my paper route, eh, Ted? Ted chuckled. How many people work for you? Well, we have a number of desks. Computers are there, as you can see. I've charged Terry with bringing the team together to implement the software changes. We have a number of salespeople. You know me. I get the money together, then get the hell out of the way. My main virtue is knowing where I have nothing to add. Terry, Ted is considering our software for his company, and we are slavishly aware of how important early sales are to a startup like ours, especially to a company as prestigious as Ted's. I've told him point-blank that we will do anything and everything to acquire his business, and that he will be as satisfied as a customer can be by going with us. Why don't you tell him what you're thinking of, Ted? Ted took a seat. My problem. I spent over two months working on my annual report for environmental compliance. We have all these audits and assessments at our plants and keeping track of them and all the follow-up. Ugh, it's way too time-consuming. We also just got two plants in North Carolina, and that gives me more headaches than my paycheck is worth hard managing all this from my desk, and it's hell getting resources from head office. So when Dave called me telling me he had software that could help, I was very interested. Dave sat back as well, crossing one leg wide over another. This software is the very latest thing, Ted. It allows you to manage and action all your environmental issues. Ticklers, emails, faxes, the internet. It's what I like to call the operating system for the environmental manager. What about health and safety? We're looking at that. Every time we talk to an environmental manager, we get the same question, since the fields are so closely related. Naturally, that's all the marketing we need. I think that there could be great synergy between the two disciplines. There are great commonalities of event tickling and project management. As a software company, of course, we are all about reducing costs for our clients. Hell, if we can't throw at least a few people out of work, or prevent the need for hire them, for departments as efficient as yours, well, we just haven't done our job. Less people, more tech. That's like the modern military, said Ted. Now, my budget is very tight. That's exactly the kind of situation we're looking for, said Dave easily. So what I propose is this. A pilot project. Get our feet wet. See where we stand. It's all about ratios. If we can show you clear value on a smaller scale, you'll be more comfortable looking for the entire suite. So let's talk about this. The actual cost of the software is 50000 per geographical location. You have plants in Canada and the U.S., correct? Yeah. So that would be a hundred thousand, but frankly, we're prepared to drop that considerably to acquire you as a reference. We view acquiring your business as tantamount to getting our foot in the door of the entire auto parts industry. So I, for one, am very comfortable accepting a lost leader. I would be prepared to offer you a 50% reduction. That is 50 thousands for the entire program with unlimited users and the ability to store information on Canadian and U.S. plants. 
See, Dave, the problem is that we have hundreds of plants in Canada, but only two in the U.S. It doesn't make much sense for me to pay another, what, 50K for only two more plants? Dave turned to Terry and grinned. Terry, he said, is it a big strain on a program if it is storing hundreds of plants to store just two more? Uh, I, I, I don't Im I imagine so, blinked Terry. Dave shrugged. Ted, you are like the most beautiful woman at the ball. Hundreds of vendors would give their eye teeth to land you. America it is, with the provision that we talk further if you acquire more plants. So that's half off 50,000, 25K? Dave paused, then tapped his teeth rather delicately. He nodded slowly, his eyes seeming to travel great distances and back. Very well. You negotiate hard, but fair. Thanks, Dave. That's very forthright. Now, from what you've told me, the program doesn't handle audits the same way I do. I'm concerned that I might be buying the machine gun for $25,000, then have to spend another 100000 for custom ammunition. I need to know how much the whole shebang is going to cost. Well, let me tell you, Ted, the key thing with software is to get a not to exceed. My confidence in Terry and his team is unsurpassed. I know the kind of stuff you're looking for, and it's not outside the ballpark of what the program does already. I think we can accommodate you for about 10k. Over and above the license? Yes. So we're talking 35k for the lot? Yes. Does that include training? Ah, hell, the program is so well designed that you won't need much. I could swing that. Terry will train you personally, and he is excellent. Perfect, said Ted, rising. Now, I've got to run. I'm going straight to my manager to talk figures. I'll fax you tomorrow with what I can wrestle from him, but it's unlikely that we could start before March. Fair enough? More than fair enough, said Dave, rising to shake his hand. Ted, you are a scholar and a gentleman. It's a pleasure doing business with you. Just another hill to be captured, said Ted, smiling pleasantly and cocking his head. After Ted had left, Dave turned to Terry, his eyes wild with joy. Terry, my boy, you are most eloquent in your silence and most well-chosen in your words. Oh, we are going to be so big that they'll have to remake the globe. Come on, let's get some brunch. I'm starving. As the three of them left the office, Terry saw what Angela had been folding together. Cardboard replicas of computers, the kind you find on desks in furniture stores. As they waited for the elevator, Dave turned to Terry. Listen, he said, we can't take long. I've got another potential client coming in this afternoon, and he'll want a demo from you. Chapter 11. Alice and Sarah Meet Stephen Stephen had a habit of reading in class. It was not a particularly subtle pursuit. His desk had a wooden lid, and he would slide the open book back and forward underneath it. So he would sit, staring down, levering the book, looking for all the world like a boy learning the mechanics of his own genitals. Teachers noticed this, but let it slide. They knew that their classes were designed more to cage the average than instruct the intelligent. If he wasn't allowed to read, Stephen rarely caused trouble for fear of being dosed with Ritalin, but sometimes dozed off, which distracted the other children. Mrs. Belanger, his English teacher, liked Stephen, and usually didn't mind his reading, but one day she saw him staring down at his crotch and cried out sharply, "'Stephen Parsons, what are you doing?' He glanced up, reddening slightly. "'Reading, Miss Belanger?' "'I see. And what are you reading?' "'Crime and Punishment.' Her eyes narrowed. "'I see. And that is so much more fascinating than what I have to say?' "'No, miss, but it's a great part.' Stephen frowned slightly. The class leaned forward, a Roman crowd. You are so much smarter than all of us, correct? I don't know. I'll tell you what, since you consider yourself so intelligent, why don't you just come up here and teach the class yourself? Excuse me? Yes, that's exactly what you should do. Come on, come up and share with us everything you have learned about 19th century Russia. Stephen stared at her. He was not particularly afraid, but couldn't quite figure out what was going on. Come on, she barked, sitting on her chair with a thump. He pulled out his book placed it on his desk, got up and walked to the front of the room. So, uh, said Stephen, turning to the tittering class, if I'm to be the teacher, we'll first get rid of this stuff. He turned and erased the blackboard. And now, since we're starting fresh, we need the date. Carefully he wrote, February the 30th, on the board. There were some giggles. Now, he said, turning around, we need to look at the content of crime and punishment before we deal with the nakedness of its characters. For instance... "'Excuse me? Why is everyone giggling? Why?' "'Yes, Alice?' "'Your date is wrong.' "'Wrong?' Stephen frowned, then turned around. "'How so?' "'There's no such date!' cried a boy. "'It doesn't exist!' cried another. Stephen frowned. "'Hm.' He turned back around. 
The date does not exist. Therefore, school cannot be in session. He raised his fists and his voice. Class dismissed! There were great cheers. Boys pulled out markers and drew on girls they liked. Paper was thrown. It took Mrs. Boulanger almost five minutes to restore order. Stephen was sent to Miss Birch's office. His punishment was light, though, because he had been reading a Russian novel. Afterwards, Sarah and Alice went up to him in the cafeteria. He sat alone, reading his novel, lost in the general hubbub of sugar and scorn. "'What were you doing?' asked Alice, tossing her dark hair. Stephen looked up, blinked, then smiled brilliantly. "'She was being unfair.' "'Unfair?' asked Sarah. The two girls sat down, sort of twice— once by putting their butts on the bench, then again by collapsing their spines forward and putting their hands on their chins. They stared at him. The cafeteria quietened somewhat, noticing the little trio. This was a new and unexpected social constellation. The social astronomers were much confused. "'It's a deal,' said Stephen. "'Everyone knows it. I read and keep quiet.' "'You are very quiet,' said Sarah. "'Do you have secrets?' Alice smiled. Well, "'It was pretty funny, but why did you do it?' Stephen shrugged. She was trying to embarrass me. I didn't like that, so I embarrassed her. There was a pause. The girls glanced at each other. So you think it's okay to embarrass a teacher? asked Sarah, turning her blue eyes back to him. No, said Stephen, tightening his lips. It's not okay. It's a must. You have to fight against unfair things. Sarah shook her head. No, after Rachel we changed our minds about that. You should walk away. Stephen leaned forward. Why? Alice frowned. You know, we've done this thing where we stop being friends with everyone. Well, you did, and interrupted Sarah, glancing at Stephen. I didn't have any friends anyway. Alice nodded. Sure, me, okay. And then all my old friends were mean to me. Talked behind my back, made up stuff. But I don't fight back any more. Of course not, shrugged Stephen, glancing at his book. What do you mean, of course not, demanded Alice, sitting up for a moment. Why is that different from you and Miss Belanger? Stephen smiled. Well, you had a sort of a club with them, your friends, right? And then you changed the rules. You left. Fair game. But Miss Belanger, she changed the rules. What do your parents do? asked Alice suddenly. It wasn't competitive, though. Just curious. My dad's a professor. My mom stays home. Huh, said Alice. What does he teach? Moral philosophy, grinned Stephen. The art and science of right and wrong. Oh, nodded Sarah, scratching the back of her blonde curls. So you think about that stuff a lot. Yeah, probably. More than most, I guess. But it's mostly because of my dad. Because of what he teaches. Stephen paused, pursed his lips, then shook his head slowly. No, because he's not happy. There was another pause. Alice sucked in her cheeks and her eyes gleamed. Okay, not happy. But not happy how? Well, he's... Stephen paused. His own eyes gleamed in turn, and he put his novel down. Tell me this. Are your parents happy? There was a pause. Each young soul considered a billion or so impressions, emotions, and memories. I don't know, murmured Alice, scratching her ear. My mom, no, maybe. Sarah was silent, her blue eyes unfocused. Stephen smiled. That's tricky, sure, but let me ask you something else. You know, the whole school is talking about you guys. Sarah frowned. Because we're friends? Stephen snorted. Ah, friends are a dime a dozen. You're more like twins. What happened? I've never had that, not with anyone. You've walked away from everything. All your old friends. Look at you. No nail polish. Those shoes. You're just killing the gap. Alice paused, considering. Well, I'm not so hyper any more. Sarah looked uncomfortable. You mean everyone is talking about us? He nodded. Oh, they all hate it. You are most envied. Huh, said Alice, glancing around the cafeteria. Were all the talking kids just pretending not to look? That seems strange, said Sarah, staring at her unpolished nails. Do you guys ever fight? Fight, echoed Sarah. Sure, we disagree. Sometimes, said Alice, but that's good. We never wanted to be those joined-at-the-hip friends, she grinned at Sarah and put on a fake voice. No, you're so right all the time, Sarah giggled, cocking her head. No, I could never be as right as you, Alice smiled. That's sad, where everything's great, but you can ever disagree with each other. No, that sucks said Sarah. Don't want that. No way. But you don't seem to have many friends, said Alice. How come? Don't know, said Stephen, glancing at his book. Are you lonely? asked Sarah, leaning forward. Do you cry in your room? Stephen looked down. Cry? 
Well, I used to. Now I'm just waiting, I think. For friends, asked Alice. For people like me, I want to go to university. Sarah whistled, sitting back. That's a long way off. You'll never make it alone, said Alice. There was a long pause. A jock pounded a doughnut, squirting another. There was a commotion. I think my dad is unhappy, murmured Sarah, finally averting her eyes. Alice turned to her. How come? Sarah blushed fiercely. He's always losing money. What does he do? asked Stephen. He makes companies. What kind? Computers. Software, clarified Alice. Stephen paused, then rubbed his nose violently. Uh-huh. And does he, um... Was he trained in computers? Sarah bit her lip, picking at her fries. No, I, I think he did something with telephones back at the beginning. When did he switch? There was another pause. Stephen and Alice exchanged glances. Dunno, whispered Sarah, her voice catching. Alice rubbed her friend's leg under the table. So, continued Stephen softly, how do you know he's unhappy? He gets mad a lot. His his cheeks shake. He's he's always worried about money. He's stressed, said Alice with great feeling. Do you think he's honest? asked Stephen. Sarah flinched. What? Alice frowned. Honest? Ouch! He spread his hands. Well, you know, a, a lot of guys go into computers, and they don't know much about them, but it's kind of a gold rush, you know, just now, a lot of money around. I don't really like that question, said Sarah, her lips trembling. Oh, no, said Stephen, his eyes widening. Don't cry. I, I'm not trying to make you... I've just... I've been thinking about my own dad, and I don't know if he's really honest. We're not talking about your dad, said Alice, putting a protective arm around Sarah. I'm sorry, said Stephen. I'm really sorry. Well, that's good, said Alice. That makes everything great. Huh, scowled Stephen. He picked up his book and stalked off. That was unfair, said Alice, glaring after him. Yeah, said Sarah, wiping her eyes. But he didn't really make me cry. She looked at Alice, her eyes slightly red. I mean, he just asked a question. <laughs>